Scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 29, verses 10 and 11. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as King forever. May the Lord give strength to His people. May the Lord bless His people with peace. Worship is all about God. And I think we know that, but I want to talk about that this morning. A friend of mine who is a doctor once pointed out to me that there is a difference between a treatment and a cure. You can treat the symptoms of some things that cannot be cured. And you can essentially get to a place where it feels like the cure has happened, but in reality we have just been treating the symptoms and the core issue is still there. And so we know, we know that there is no cure for cancer, and yet every time we hear that someone we know has been diagnosed, we expect to hear they will begin radiation and chemotherapy treatments very soon because there's a difference. Well, what is the difference? You know as well as I do. The difference is one addresses a problem on the surface, one addresses a problem at its core. And so when you have a headache, you take Tylenol, it doesn't always address the core problem causing that headache, it just deals with the symptoms. Sometimes when we talk about spiritual issues, we do exactly the same thing. We talk about, we talk about treatments as though they are cures, and we forget to focus on curing the core issue, on addressing the core issue. And so in the case of worship, in many churches of all different denominations, people observe from time to time that our worship is boring, or our worship doesn't seem to be very enthusiastic or very inspired, or, you know, I just don't get very much out of going to this church. And so then we attempt to get more out of the worship, we begin by changing a few things, but we sometimes only change the surface stuff. And so we put the seats in a different arrangement, I think, well, maybe if we're looking at each other, then worship will be more uplifting. Or what if we change the music, if we sing only the older songs, or if we just sing the psalms, or if we bring in a band or just change it entirely, then worship will be different. Or we decide to change the place where we meet. You know, this whole idea of a church building, it's just not working for us anymore. We need to meet in a house and then worship will be what it's supposed to be. Can I point out three things about those three different categories, or two things, excuse me, about those three categories very quickly? Number one, not all of those ideas are wrong, and not all of those ideas are bad. Okay, If a church meets in a house, and they worship sitting in a circle, and they only sing the Psalms, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But number two, if in our efforts to improve our worship, that is all that we change we will soon find out that worship is boring and uninspired again. Because when we only change those things, we are only treating the symptoms. And the core issue will resurface. It will come back again. And so in both of today's lessons, we're going to talk about what it really takes to worship better. We're going to address this core issue. And I may need some help moving these slides today. Um, We are going to try to address the core issue. And this morning we're going to do that by beginning and talking about God Himself. The foundation for worship is Jehovah God. Period. The foundation for true worship must be Jehovah God. And so in the psalm that we just read a minute ago, you still got your Bible open to Psalm number 29, as we... as. Um 
Matt read for that from the last two verses of that psalm for us just a second ago, but take a look at the psalm in its entirety. Take a look at what David understands about worship. Who do you see mentioned in every single verse of that psalm? It's all about Jehovah God from the beginning to the end. David understood that knowing God and knowing God as He truly exists is the essential foundation to every action of worship and every attitude of worship. It is only in this, in our understanding of God, that we can enact permanent and real change in our worship to God. When we worship, we find, as the title of this sermon suggests, that we are in the presence of God. And we need to understand who that God is, to understand that He deserves our worship. If we start with anything shy of that, we will never make real lasting changes in the worship and real lasting improvements in the worship that we try to offer to Him. It begins with God. One writer has well said, This God whom we claim to know is the one before whom thousands upon thousands of angels and archangels, they stand never ceasing to laud and praise Him as the holy and glorious majesty. He is completely unique, truly glorious, and incomparably holy. And so David said in verse 2 of Psalm 29, Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. So we need to know God. We must know God if we're going to worship Him properly. But the question then arises, okay, well, how hard can that be? God is love. What more do you need to know? Right? 1 John 4, 8. What more is there? Yes, listen. I know that the most common thing that we talk about in this era of time as God's people is that God is love. And for my entire life, I have heard preachers say, if we understand that God is love, then everything else that we see about His nature will all fit into that. And I believe that is true. However, far and away, more often mentioned in the Scripture than the fact that God is love, far and away, the greatest, most frequently mentioned thing about God is that He is holy. That God is holy. More often than the Scriptures emphasize His tender compassion. More often than the Scriptures emphasize His wrathful justice. More often than the Scriptures emphasize His grace and His mercy. The Scriptures emphasize that our God is holy. I want to look quickly at a passage in Leviticus chapter 10 with you. Would you turn your Bibles over there please? Leviticus chapter 10. Now, we normally go to this passage to learn lessons about God's authority and how God asked Nadab and Abihu in this passage for a certain type of fire. They chose to use a different kind of fire on the altar. And because they used something that was unauthorized by God, He punished them. And so we learn uh, some very valuable lessons, I believe. Some very valuable lessons about how we view the authority of God. But can I tell you that even more foundational than the fact that they misunderstood the authority of God is the fact that they misunderstood the holiness of God. 
Take a look at the passage with me in Leviticus chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, this is verse 1, each took his censer and they put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered, there it is, unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. This is very dramatic. Okay, but look at verse 3, what God says about all this drama. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. You can kind of understand why he did. God says, before all the people, I will be regarded as holy. And God is so adamant about the fact that they view Him in that way. He wants us to remember His holiness first. I believe fundamentally this is the main thing that we need to know about God. You know what's interesting to me is when the Jews were going to teach the Old Testament to their children, when they were going to teach them the law, we would think that they would begin with Genesis. You begin with the story, how God created man, all that. You know where they started? Leviticus. Leviticus. Now, to us, that just sounds like a torture chamber, I know. But they began with Leviticus because it teaches, above all else, that their God is holy. And we need to begin with the exact same understanding. So, what does that mean? What does that mean for us, that God is holy? Most often in the churches where I have grown up, when we define holiness, we say it means set apart. That's almost always the given definition. But I have a question about that. What about the passage in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5 where God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you? Does that contradict the fact that God is set apart from us if He can never leave us? Anybody ever had difficulty understanding this? I, I admit fully that I have. Okay, That it's been a tricky thing for me to understand. But one verse that helped me to clarify all of it is this one in Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15. Yeah, you can write that down very quickly. We'll come back to that idea. In Isaiah 57 and 15, God says, I dwell in the high and set apart holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. God is close to the one who needs him. He is not set apart in that sense. He is set apart in the fact that God is unique. That there is no one else like God. And so in Psalm number 113, David asks, Who is like our God who is seated on high? And the obvious answer is, No one. Because in His holiness, God is perfectly powerful. God is perfectly knowledgeable. God is perfectly present. He is there all the time and everywhere. God is perfectly full of life. He is eternal. His own life will never end and He never runs out of life that He can give to us. And God is perfectly right. All the time, in every way, in every place, God is right. We always say the only thing that God cannot do is that God cannot lie. But can I expand that a little bit and just say that God cannot do anything that is evil? Because it is against the very nature of who He is. He cannot do something sinful even on accident. 
Because God is entirely too holy. It means that God is unique. That God is perfect in all of His existence. And so when Isaiah sees the great vision of the Lord in the temple, in Isaiah chapter 6, when he gets to see God in the temple, he, he, he sees a vision of angels flying all around God, surrounding Him as the train of His robe fills the temple and the glory of God is there. And the angels cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. This aspect of His nature, brothers and sisters, this is not one of many aspects of God's nature. This is the defining element of everything that He is. His love is because of His holiness. His justice is because of His holiness. His mercy is because of His holiness. His purity is because of His holiness. This is the defining aspect of who He is. And if this was all we knew about Him, worship would still be worth it. But this isn't all that we know about Him because even here in this verse you find another, another important aspect of God that deserves our worship. The whole earth is full of His glory. And so we learn that God is glorious. Now to speak about God's glory is to declare His importance. This is a difficult concept for me to wrap my mind around, but I'll give it to you in the terms that it made sense to me. Turns out, as you study the ancient languages, that the Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, the word for the glory of God is very, very closely related to the Hebrew word for weight or gravity or, or just heft of something. And so the glory of God is what makes His presence heavy. Right? You remember in Back to the Future, whenever Marty McFly would realize something really important, all of a sudden he'd go, Doc, that's heavy. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's important. Okay? There's something very significant about this realization, and there is something significant about the presence of God. In Genesis chapter 45, there's a little example of this. When Joseph's brothers come to Egypt to get food and he sends them back and he's finally told them who he is and he says, go back home and tell my father Jacob of all of my glory here in Egypt. Well, what were they supposed to tell Jacob? They were inevitably going to go home and say, Dad, he's second in command. Everybody but Pharaoh does what he says. He's very important. When he comes in the room, everybody stands up straighter. It's an impressive presence to be in. And you know what? That's what it's like to be in the presence of God. That is the glory of God and how it should affect us. I want you to turn your Bible to Exodus chapter 33 for just a minute, please. In Exodus chapter 33, we're picking up in a chapter where the Israelites have seen the plagues of Egypt... Moses has seen the burning bush. They've been across the Red Sea. They've been through the Red Sea, in fact, on dry ground. They've seen a lot of impressive stuff from God at this point. And then you get to chapter 33, and there's this interesting passage where Moses is talking with God. And he says to God in verse 18 of this chapter, Please show me your glory. God, show me what makes you truly important and truly impressive. Now, I've got to admit to you, the first time I read that and realized where it falls in all this stuff, how it comes after the plagues and the Red Sea and all this and the manna and everything. After I read it and realized where it comes, I kind of looked at it and I went, Moses, what is your problem? 
You have seen the burning bush. You have seen the plagues on Egypt. You have seen the parting of the Red Sea. Matter of fact, you've participated in all of it. How can you still say, God, show me what makes you important? You've seen it. But what I think is interesting is that Moses knew that even more than what God can do with water and fire and frogs and thunder... Moses understood that there is something so important and impressive about the presence of God. And it's very interesting to me as well that with all the different ways that we can imagine that God would want to show us His glory, right? He could have painted a picture of Himself in the stars. He could have, He could just make, thing, make volcanoes explode all over the earth and say, Obey me or else I'll burn you up with these. I mean, any number of different things that we can't even imagine that He could have done to show His power and His glory. And yet you get to the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 1. And we read there that the sun is the radiance of the glory of God. Of all things, of all the attention-getting and ostentatious ways that God could have shown us what really makes Him important, He chose to send a man who was born in a barn, grew up as a carpenter, died as a criminal, and was raised in a garden. That is the glory of our God, brothers and sisters. That is what makes God important. That is the formula for a God who is worthy of worship. And that brings us to our final idea for this morning. And for that, I'm going to pull this right back to where we started. Because we started this discussion. Okay, how do we make worship better? What's the core issue that needs to be addressed? Not just the symptoms, but the core issue. Well, it takes understanding this. Understanding who God is so that we can address Him better. And so we learn about God. We understand that He is not only loving, but that He is holy and glorious. And we put all of this together. But the big question is, how does that affect? our worship what is worship anyway how is this going to all play in together well here's the answer at least my simple version of it worship is our response to being in his presence this is the reason for the title of these lessons today and it is based on so many occasions when people came in the presence of God in the scriptures. When Moses saw the burning bush, he was told to take his shoes off. Why? Because the presence of God is a holy presence and Moses had to change something about himself to be there. When Gideon was called as to be a judge of God's people, he realized he had spoken with one of God's messengers and he was overcome with fear because he realized how important this God is. When Isaiah met God in that vision we talked about in Isaiah chapter 6, he cried out, "Woe is me, I am undone." He was taken in humility because he knew how impressive God is. And even the Apostle John, you know, you think this is the disciple whom Jesus loved. They had a very close relationship. They were buddies. And yet even the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, when he sees, when he sees the risen Lord, the Revelation simply says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. All of these illustrate an attitude 
and an act of worship when a person finds himself in the presence of God. So what does that look like for us? How is that going to play out? I think this is a good, a good place for us to talk about a definition of worship. Definitions, and eh, this sometimes worth it, sometimes not. Hopefully this one will be. Worship is, at least according to my definition, our attempt to accurately understand, praise, thank, magnify, and yes, even imitate the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And when you realize how grand that Lord of Lords and King of Kings truly is, all of a sudden worship becomes a little more than a Sunday routine. Worship becomes an all-consuming attitude and a view to the God that we address it to. Two things about that. Two things from that definition that I want to highlight. Number one, what does it mean to magnify God in our worship? I think we kind of understand pretty well the rest of those, but I want to talk about this one for just a moment. When you use a magnifying glass, what are you doing to the object being magnified? Are you actually changing it? Are you changing the object under the glass by using that? Now, I know somebody's inevitably sitting there going, well, yeah, if you hold it just right, you can burn the object under the glass. I know, okay, I know. But I'm talking about using it to magnify, okay, not to set fires, (laughs) you bunch of pyros. Um, This, when you do this... When you do this, are you actually changing the object? Well, no, of course not. You're changing your view of the object. And what is the point of that? The point is you change your view so you can understand that object a little bit better. When the psalmists write, come and magnify the Lord with me. Are we changing God in any way? Are we improving God in any way? Are we making Him more holy by worshiping Him? Or more generous by worshiping Him? Or does God live longer because we worship Him? No, of course the answer is no to all of these. We cannot improve God. We cannot change God. His nature is consistent and constant. However, when we magnify the Lord, we understand Him a little better. Our view of Him is improved. And so we understand what worship can do for us when we magnify the Lord. When we sing, How great Thou art! We don't actually make God any greater, but when we sing, How great Thou art! We understand God's greatness a little bit better. And so... We do this. In Psalm number 34 and verse 3, David says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt or hold up His name together. That is our job. When we come together, it is to draw closer and closer to God and understand Him better every single time we worship. So a couple practical pieces of advice in that regard. Please don't walk into a worship service hoping that the song leader picks your favorite songs. It's bigger than that. Please don't walk into a worship service service hoping that brother so-and-so leads one of those prayers because he always leads such nice prayers. Listen, it's bigger than that. Please don't walk into a worship service thinking, you know, I just really haven't gotten much out of church lately. I hope today is better for me. It is bigger than you. Because if we're hoping for those things, we are missing the real core issue of worship. You want to get something out of it. Make sure that you are giving your all to God. And then He will give, and He will give more abundantly than we could have ever asked in the first place. 
The second thing I want to point out to you from this definition is this word here, that worship is our attempt to magnify God. Our attempt to magnify God. Could you, and I genuinely think about this for a minute, could you accurately and completely tell God all the things that are great about Him? Could you do that? Could you tell God how powerful He is? Exactly how powerful He is. Could you tell God exactly how loving He is? Could you tell God exactly how merciful and generous and righteous and holy He is? Could you come up with enough words to accurately explain that in all of its facets? I know that you can't. And I know that I can't. Because I know that none of us can even understand those in the first place, much less come up with the words to accurately verbalize it. And so no one, no one can truly worship God for all that He deserves. One writer made a brilliant observation when he said, Isn't it comforting to know that we worship a God whom we cannot exaggerate? That's exactly right. Isn't it comforting to know that we worship a God whom we cannot exaggerate? And so the problem is that even with the best, most beautiful hymns that we can write, even with the best words of praise that we can think of, even with the best, most generous offerings we can give, even with our best thoughts, the most deep insights into the Lord's Supper, and even with our best study of God's Word, we will never be able to truly worship Him like He fully deserves. Never! Because He is simply too good. I suspect... I suspect that our worship probably comes across to God a little bit like children trying to write a valentine. Right? It's Valentine's Day. That bears mentioning. I think that sometimes our worship to God must come across like a child writing a valentine. And I'm not saying that we're stupid or anything. I'm not saying that, that you know we're just a bunch of babies. But when you think of the magnificent being that we are trying to accurately praise, our efforts must fall so short. Must fall so short of truly expressing the matchless love that He is consumed with, the matchless holiness that consumes Him. I really suspect that we're more like children in this way than we would like to admit. That even with our most honest and heartfelt thing that we've ever said or written, let's just be honest, sometimes the praise that a child gives is a little less than profound. Okay, let me show you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about here. My second Valentine is for Miss Johnson. She is a great teacher. She's not on the Jedi Council, but she is great with the Force. It's high praise from the right audience. I love you, Mama. Hi, Sydney loves you too. I have beautiful eyes. Not you do. I have beautiful eyes. I meant you. Have beautiful eyes. P.S. You make the best guacamole. Thank you, Mom, for making me food so I don't die. (laughs) Dear Mommy, my eyes are blue. I love you. And when it's time to go night-night, you tuck me in very tight. 
I love you with all my heart. I love you more than my sushi, and that's a lot of love. Thank you for everything. I love you, Mommy. Listen, that's a bit small-minded. Kids can't help that. It's just the way that we are. We have a limited perspective when we are children. But can I say to you that as the children of God, I think we have a limited perspective on Him as well. And I think the way that we express ourselves, even at its finest, must come across to God in some of the same ways. When we attempt to worship Jehovah God, the God who said, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Even on our best days of true worship, we still have a limited perspective. And what that means for us is that when we worship, it is never about how good our efforts were. It is always about how great God is. Now, one more word about that before I move away from it. As a parent, these kind of small gestures, these kind of silly, sometimes gestures from our children... They are some of the most touching and most pleasing expressions of praise that we can receive. And as much as they can make us laugh, they can also make us cry tears of joy because we are so pleased with our children's efforts. I've got a canvas in my office that Henry painted for me just about a year ago. I'm just telling you, it's not a Rembrandt. I get that. But you, if you tried to take it out of my office, we'd have some words. <laughs> It's valuable to me. It's pleasing to me. It's important to me. And so may I say to you sincerely that I believe, even though our worship may be small-minded and our limited perspective plays in so much into this, I still believe that when our efforts are genuine, that they are pleasing to God. Over and over again, through the book of Leviticus in particular, when God talks about the sacrifices of worship that He wants His people to make, He says they ascend to Him as a pleasing aroma. God is pleased when His people truly make an effort to give our best because He is simply the best. When we worship, we are in the presence of an awesome God. And so we do our best to ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due to His name. And to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Worship is all about God. And part of worshiping God is understanding our need to obey Him. This is where I want to finish this morning. Understanding our need to obey Him. We'll talk a good deal more about this particular aspect of worship tonight in our evening lesson. Please be here for that at 5 o'clock. Barring any weather interruptions, we plan to be here to worship Him again and to talk more about this idea. If God is truly as great as we say He is, then it is important that we obey Him as our King, our great King. And so this morning, I want to extend a very simple invitation. If you have not been obeying God, whether you have never been obeying God in your life, and you are are ready to be baptized and be a believer and a follower and a disciple of Him, or if you just haven't been obeying God lately,
And you know how great He is, but you've been treating Him like He's second rate. I just want to invite you to come back to Him and to put yourself, to put yourself so much lower than Him. In Psalm number 8, David said, What is man that you are mindful of him? That's the place that we ought to be able to see ourselves in reflection of this great God. And so if that's where you are this morning and you need to come back to Him and you need to make a spiritual need known publicly to this congregation, you can come talk to myself or to one of the shepherds who will be standing right over here and we'll do our best to open the Word of God and help you with that. Whatever we can do for you. Would you please let us know by coming forward while we all stand and sing together.